The show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety. Twists, endings, and all. Without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. I'm Paul Tyler and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books and TV shows in their entirety. This week we're reading Douglas Adams' comedy science fiction novel, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the book. We will ruin it for you. So if you've not already read The Hitchhiker's Guide, go away, read it now, then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right. On with the show. There can't be many Radio 4 series which have spawned international best-selling books, stage shows, TV adaptations, comic books, computer games and a Hollywood movie. Unsold copies of the Today programme graphic novel are still cluttering up John Humphrey's garage, whilst filming of Ramblings the Movie was aborted due to Claire Balding's excessive pay demands and insistence on having a private hot tub on set. But in March 1978, with little fanfare, Radio 4 launched a comedy series which would go on to become an international phenomenon. This is the story of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Perhaps the most remarkable, certainly the most successful book ever to come out of the great publishing corporations of Ursa Minor. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy tells the story of the last surviving human being, Arthur Dent and his peculiar alien friend, Ford Prefect, as they embark on a haphazard journey around the universe following the destruction of the Earth to make way for a hyperspace bypass. I'm afraid you're going to have to accept it. This bypass has got to be built and it is going to be built. Nothing you can say or do... Why has it got to be built? What what do you mean, why has it got to be built? It is a bypass. You've got to build bypasses. Famous for its pioneering use of sound, courtesy of the BBC's Radiophonic Workshop, the series quickly gained a dedicated following and was repeated twice more before the year was out. Following its success on radio, writer Douglas Adams adapted the first four episodes into a novel, which immediately topped the bestseller list in the UK. And in spite of, or perhaps because of, its quintessentially British humour, the book went on to international success too, eventually being translated into 30 languages and selling over 14 million copies. Ford handed the book to Arthur. What is it? asked Arthur. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's a sort of electronic book. It tells you everything you need to know about anything. That's its job. To describe The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as being well-loved is something of an understatement. Over the years since its original release, the hunger from dedicated fans for more from the franchise has never abated. Even the death of the much-loved Douglas Adams in 2001 at the tragically young age of 49 hasn't stopped the hitchhiker juggernaut, with ever more adaptations and even a new book in the series being published. And the fans eagerly await each new incarnation with a mixture of excitement, anticipation and a fierce protectiveness of Adams' legacy. Life said Marvin dolefully. Loathe it or ignore it, you can't like it. But such levels of fan love can make any franchise an intimidating place for newcomers. So, leaving aside all the fan forums, movies, stage plays, video games and umpteen other incarnations, does the original Hitchhiker's Guide novel, nearly four decades on from its release, still stand up to scrutiny? You just come along with me and have a good time. The galaxy's a fun place. You'll need to have this fish in your ear. 
Later in the show, inspired by the likes of Zaphod Beeblebrox and Slarty Bartfast, in The Hitchhiker's Guide, we'll be taking a look at the tradition of comic character names in movies. And, following Johan Colfer's 2009 continuation of The Hitchhiker series, we'll be investigating the trend for new authors to take on existing franchises. But first, joining me to discuss the whole of life, the universe and everything, is a woman that can drink more pan-galactic gargle blasters <laughs> than anyone around this table. It's Rachel Burnett. Hello. And a man who never goes anywhere without a towel. It's Andy Gould. <laughs> Hello. Now then, uh, are we all going to be uh, in a bit of danger of a complete loving here? Rachel, I mean, is this for you? Right, I'm going to try and be critical of it because I really love it because I came to it via the radio series, mm-hmm. which I think is tremendous. Everyone comes to it in different ways. Some by the books, some by the radio, some by the TV, some by the film. Um, me, it was radio. I have a deep love for it. And then I read the books, which are slightly different. And so when I was reading the books, I could hear the voices. Mm-hmm. And I think that helped me quite a bit to sol- sort of solidify it. Because I think when I read books with too many weird names in it, like I've tried to read Game of Thrones, for example... I get caught up in the names. Am I saying that right in my head? Is that right? Is, is it like that? And who's that person? And is he connected to that person? And who's that? So much easier if you've listened to the radio show first. Mm-hmm. So I read the book with a love in my heart anyway for the characters. And um, I really love it. I do. But it's quite slight. I'm going to say it's quite slight. Andy, um, are you uh, are you a hitchhiker? Are you a fan? Well, I thought I'd, I'd start this week, Paul, by telling you my favourite joke of all time. Imagine the scene, there's two hippos side by side, (laughs) submerged up to their noses in a deep brown swamp. And then imagine the camera pulls away from the hippos and we pan round the entire swamp and you can see heat haze rising up off the dirty water. You can see these dying plants all around the, the muddy banks of the swamp. And we come all the way back to the two hippos submerged in the water. And one hippo turns to the other and he says... Do you know, I just can't get it into my head that it's Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> now, given that that is my favourite joke of all time, <laughs> do you think I was a fan of this book? <laughs> um, I, think, I think that I immediately thought the hippo joke when I started reading this book because uh, Douglas Adams does a, a lot of this in, in this book. It's, it's taking something familiar and placing it into an unfamiliar context or vice versa. So taking an android and making him depressed or, or mm. having a, a Vogon minion who's disillusioned with the weekly grind and things like that. <laughs> and I've never been a big a big sci-fi fan, really, but I love this. And I think it's because I, I like that. So I like the small and trivial things. So it's placing those within that bigger context makes it easier for me to grab onto. I, I was the one who chose this book because I, I've gone years without reading it. This was my first time of reading it, and I thought it would it would make me read it. So I really wanted to do that. But I also chose it because I thought it would be quite a light read after we did Room, the previous yeah. series. And I found it a light in subject matter, despite the fact that it starts with the entire Earth being destroyed. <laughs> uh, but I've got, I got to say... the. On first reading, I've read it a couple of times now. On first reading, I didn't find it like a, a relaxing, easy read because I think it's so dense with these complex concepts that you have to engage with to fully get the comedy out of them. I mean, a few lines into the book, there's a, a line about when the uh, the Vogon ships come down and it says, the ships hung in the sky in much the same way that bricks don't. 
<laughs> and I, I sat and the, I, I tried to carry on reading straight away after that, but I couldn't. And I had to stop and I sat and thought about that line. <laughs> I, first of all, I laughed and then I thought about it and thought, what what image did it conjure in my head? And what's that? What Douglas Adams meant? And that, so that, that's... I agree with you that in terms of like in terms of story, it's it's quite slight. It's quite so. It's like a series of sketches, isn't it? Uh, that build up. They do build. They do go somewhere, and they do mm. go to what I think is an amazing punchline, which we'll get to later. But uh, there is a, a lot in here to keep your brain working while while you're reading. And I was quite interested, Paul, because did you listen to the audio book? Yeah, I did. Of course, I did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> did you Did you find it easy to to keep up with? Because I, when I was reading, it, I thought if I was listen to the audiobook I might miss some things because it would carry on after a line like that one mm-hmm. and I wouldn't have that time to to just stop and think about it okay brilliant question and something I was go- I was going to come up with anyway because I uh, am in the process of a midlife crisis, turned 40 this year. So uh, naturally, I've taken up running, okay? <laughs> and I'm training at the minute for a 10-mile run. And I thought, well, this is going to be great because, you know, this is over five hours. I thought, well, this is, this, you know, this is good. I'm, I'm out running for about an hour at a time at the minute. Five runs, boom, done. You know, this is this one wiped up. And actually, as I was out on my first run, I was... I mean, Stephen Fry read this, and let's face it, you know, he could he could, he could read anything. And this, I, I listened to him uh, read his own books pretty much on an annual basis, particularly the Stars Tennis Balls, love it. Um, and we've gone through uh, at home a couple of the uh, the Harry Potter books as well, you know. And it's just, you know, it's, it's a it's a lush, wonderful world to to, to get yourself in. So I'm out plodding, <laughs> running. Let's call it plodding. <laughs> and after about twenty minutes, I thought, well, I need to stop. And this is it, it's too much. I've already got a lot to think about. I did, and by the end of it, I got home and I was physically, <laughs> obviously tired, uh, but also quite mentally tired. And I thought, no, actually, from then on, I, I didn't really listen to uh, to it when I went out running anymore. Uh, it was more the very short commutes I had for work and while doing the washing up. And actually, about the time, about the period of doing the washing up or or hanging your washing on the line is is, is about <laughs> enough in small chunks. Yeah. So how did, how did you originally come to it then, Anne? I read it fairly quickly just because it is quite a short read, isn't it? And mm. the, the chapters are, are quite short as well. So, you know, you get that thing where you think, shall I read another chapter and you see how short it is? And you think I might as well. Um, I read, I think I started reading it in bed and then I did uh, read the rest of it in just one chunk and it was I was in town in the day for a job interview and so after that, after a job interview, I always go and have a pint and reward myself. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so I took, I took this with me and I sat down and I, I, I was reading it. And I, had, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll just finish this and I'll, I'll continue drinking as I do. So I had a few more pints. And it, it was odd. I, I used to have this theory when I was in my teens and I used to go out and we used to play pool. That I became a better pool player the more I had to drink. And, <laughs> I thought that that was because I was a bad pool player in the first place, but only just, I was only a little bit off. And so that, just like having that blurry double vision would just correct my sights a little bit. And in a way, having a drink while I read this had that same kind of mental effect. It knocked my brain a bit skew with. And uh, the the longer I read it and the more I drank, (laughs) the more I enjoyed it. I think that means that my brain must be naturally squiffy then. Because <laughs> I can read it quite happily with that story. <laughs> Without having any pangalactic gargle. <laughs> and I, let's talk about the, the, the comedy in it. You know, the, the, we could get lost in the science fiction of it, but the comedy of it. I mean, were you laughing out loud at this? I mean, I certainly was. I look, you know, I look... 
when I was I was running around, I looked like a lunatic, <laughs> like, you know, laughing laughing along. You know, I mean, there are points points in there where he says, "You know, Ford, you're turning into a penguin. Stop it." <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, just it, it's hilarious. You see, I'm laughing out loud at it now, but I I I wasn't reading the book actually. I think there might have been a couple of times I laughed out loud, but I think maybe I would have done done it more if I'd been listening to the radio show or listening to the audio book possibly. Mm. Uh, for me, a lot of a lot of the comedy here, I read and I thought, yeah, that's funny. And then later on, just thinking about it, when I wasn't reading the book, then I started laughing. And it's it's because of the how like how big some of the concepts are, and like the comedy comes from these great situations and things. And that was what really tickled me, I think, was thinking about it afterwards. Yeah, I think sometimes you need that inflection as well. And you need it performed for yeah. you. Well, the way and, Paul uh, just did that uh, line was really funny. That was really funny. funny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. And, um, I am uh, available for work. <laughs> and now later, Andy will be taking a look at the tradition of comedic character names in movies. And inspired by Yoen Colfer's 2009 addition to the Hitchhiker's trilogy, Rachel's investigating the trend for new authors to take on existing series. That's all after this short break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you'd like to help us make more, you can do so by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Alternatively, if you're planning to buy anything from Amazon, if you do that via the links on our website, we'll get a few pennies each time. That's spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency by Douglas Adams. You can cancel your membership at any time within the 30 days and you won't pay a penny, but you still get to keep your free audiobook. Just go to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and click on the Audible trial ad on the left-hand side. We get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will help fund producer Johnny's self-destructive gambling habit. Now, back to the show. Arthur Dent sat and quivered. He had no idea what he was in for, but he knew that he hadn't liked anything that had happened so far and didn't think things were likely to change. Welcome back. You are listening to Spoiler and we are discussing The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And don't forget, we talk about all of it. So if you've not read, seen the ending, we will be giving it away later on as we discuss it. Now, The Hitchhiker's Guide series features some of the most bizarre and frankly silly character names to grace the page or screen. But there's a long tradition of comedic names in fiction. The boringly conventionally named Andy Goulding has been taking a look at some more mirthful movie monikers. When Douglas Adams came up with the characters Zaphod Beeblebrox and Slotty Barkfast, he was knowingly contributing to an age-old tradition of ludicrously comedic names that somehow managed to set up expectations about their owner before they've even said a word. An early master of these curiously descriptive names was Charles Dickens, who liked to flag up the arrival of a colourful character with an equally colourful and often unlikely name. My favourite example of this is Mr Pumblechuck, a character name which immediately elicits laughter, but also sets up certain expectations. Great expectations, if you will. In just three syllables, Dickens somehow gets across the image of an overweight, pompous, self-important man before he has written a single descriptive passage. You can sense Pumblechuck's room-shaking girth in the clumsy waddle of the first two syllables, while the final one evokes the cocky, puffed-up pride of a cockerel. 
The thrill of discovering that the image Dickens has planted in our heads matches the character traits he goes on to describe is akin to the excitement inspired by a magic trick. And indeed, it is a magic trick of sorts, conjuring with words. The cinematic precedent for bizarre names was set by Groucho Marx's increasingly outlandish aliases. Unlike Dickens' characters, audiences going to see a Marx Brothers comedy knew exactly what they were getting from the four leads. Though the brothers nominally adopted different roles in each film, everyone knew that Groucho Marx would be the same wise-cracking anarchist whether he was portraying a doctor, a college professor, or dictator of a small country. It was in this last guise in the classic film Duck Soup that Groucho assumed perhaps his most famous pseudonym, Rufus T. Firefly. Not that I care, but where is your husband? Why, he's dead. I'll bet he's just using that as an excuse. I was with him till the very end. <laughs> no wonder he passed away. I held him in my arms and kissed him. Oh, I see. Then it was murder. Will you marry me? Did he leave you any money? Answer the second question first. It's a funny name, appealingly irreverent in its wacky meaninglessness, and it sets up just one expectation. This is going to be fun. Gratro's character names became as famous as his one-liners, each one tickling the funny bone with its oddly concatenated words and superfluous initials. Rufus T. Firefly was followed by Otis B. Driftwood, who then ceded the stage to Hugo Z. Hackenbush. Arguably, the joke began to wear thin during later films, when you can almost hear the writer's mind cogs whirring in an attempt to string together the most unlikely words possible. Sure, J. Cheever loophole still elicits a laugh, but it somehow lacks the satisfying semi-credibility that resulted in the comedic longevity of Rufus T. Firefly. By the time Groucho played the part of Wolf J. Flywheel, the game was clearly up. If any form of pleasure is exhibited, report to me and it will be prohibited. I'll put my foot down, so shall it be. This is the land of the free. Sometimes the point of a strange character name has far clearer motives. Just as Groucho's oddball monikers became traditional, so the female sidekicks in the James Bond series all had to have names that not only transcended normality, but also gave the audiences a sly wink as to their main purpose in the movie, as if that skin-tight bikini wasn't enough of a clue. What's your name? Rider. Rider what? Honey Rider. Ursula Andres' iconic Honey Rider began the tradition in the first Bond film, Dr. No, and without any other Bond girls before her, audiences could be forgiven for missing the implication. What's so funny about it? Nothing. It's a very pretty name. Few did, of course, but just in case, two films later, the Bond franchise gave us Honor Blackman's Pussy Galore, an outrageously unambiguous name for one of the most alarmingly mistreated Bond girls in the series. Who are you? My name is Pussy Galore. I must be dreaming. The name, originating in Ian Fleming's Goldfinger novel, was deemed so lewd that US censors almost cut it out of the film. Can I help you? Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. I'm looking for Dr. Goodhead. You just found her. Perhaps only Lois Charles's Holly Goodhead from Moonraker comes close to topping it for smuttiness, although it's an easier pseudonym to explain away to an inquisitive child on a Sunday afternoon. Perhaps with the excuse, it's because she has a good head on her shoulders. Not that intelligence precludes anyone from the baffling charms of the tuxedo misogynist. After all, Dr Christmas Jones obviously worked hard at university, only to find herself reduced to a filthy festive pun at the end of The World Is Not Enough. Yeah, how so? I thought Christmas only comes once a year.
the testosterone-fumed world of professional boxing, silly names are part and parcel of the experience, something that writer and star of the Rocky film Sylvester Stallone clearly understood. Rocky's list of opponents across six films includes his original nemesis and subsequent friend Apollo Creed. Look, it's the name, man. A beautifully judged name, which encapsulates sky-high ambition, godlike narcissism, and dedication to a personal moral code. Clubber Lang. You ready for another beating? You should have never came back. A more straightforwardly brutal alias to match Mr. T's sledgehammer performance in the role. And Tommy Gunn, his opponent in Rocky V. Tommy the Machine Gunn! And the symbol of the diminishing returns of the franchise, as once elaborate but multi-layered character names give way to feeble puns. By this time, however, Stallone had made a name for himself outside of the Rocky series as one of Hollywood's biggest action heroes. His iconic role in this respect was that of John Rambo, a fairly down-to-earth name in a genre which is home to some of the most phenomenally unlikely character names ever. Mark Lester's Commando sees Arnold Schwarzenegger take on the role of John Matrix, while Days of Thunder features Tom Cruise as racing driver Cole Trickle, a name that sounds simultaneously like he needs a doctor and an auto mechanic. Guillermo del Toro's Pacific Rim proves that you can only get away with a character name like Stacker Pentecost if you cast Idris Elba and your film is about massive robots hitting each other. But even fantastical subject matter doesn't always get you off the hook. Writer-director Albert Payan, working under the distinctly unmasculine alias of Kitty Chalmers, decided to name most of the characters in his 1989 Jean-Claude Van Damme vehicle Cyborg after manufacturers and models of musical equipment. The results? A dystopian sci-fi film in which a bad guy named Fender Tremolo is impaled on a meat hook by the heroic mercenary Gibson Rickenbacker. Really? While action films can take themselves a little too seriously, which often makes it all the more fun for audiences that don't, the superhero subgenre has proved to be an entertaining modern equivalent which combines fast-paced thrills with a prominent sense of humour. This is largely thanks to the source material comic books from which they draw their characters, which mix satisfyingly high stakes and dark storylines with a gleeful love of colourful quirks, which includes, of course, some great character names. Perhaps unexpectedly, the most unusual and amusing aliases are not the names these heroes and villains use while suited up in their spandex, but the secret real-world identities they hide behind or from which they mutated. For instance, Dr Octopus became a supervillain when the four-armed apparatus he was working on became accidentally fused with his body. Given that his real name was Otto Octavius, he really should have seen it coming, as J.K. Simmons' newspaper editor amusingly points out in Spider-Man 2. <laughs> guy named Otto Octavius winds up with eight limbs. What are the odds? Likewise, Victor Von Doom was hardly going to be a paediatrician with a name like that, was he? But what's in a name? As depicted by Samuel L. Jackson in a number of recent Marvel films, Nick Fury is a good guy, despite sounding like a man who has violently overreacted to cutting himself while shaving. Perhaps the greatest comic book character name ever belongs to the Penguin, who more than makes up for his innocuous supervillain moniker with the real name Oswald Chesterfield Cobblepot. Now there's a name you wouldn't enter into a business deal with. I believe the word you're looking for is... Ah! 
but for probably the most laughable name in film history, we must turn to Dead Poets Society. I hereby reconvene the Dead Poets Society. That's right, Peter Weir's Oscar-winning drama film, Dead Poets Society. What is this Dead Poets Society? I want names. Set in an elite Vermont boarding school, the film focuses on a group of privileged but troubled students who find themselves inspired by an unconventional authority-flouting teacher played by Robin Williams, fresh from his role as an unconventional, authority-flouting DJ, and several years prior to his role as an unconventional, authority-flouting doctor. Among these impressionable youths is a budding romantic played by Josh Charles. His name? Knox Overstreet. Knox Overstreet. I'll say it again. Knox Overstreet. Knox Overstreet? It's a rather unfortunate name. Now... I understand that writer Tom Shulman had many comments to make on elite conservative educational institutions, but he could hardly have been less subtle if he'd named the character Tarquin Farquharson Fauntleroy III. Besides which, when writing a serious film set in the real world that aims to make pertinent observations, if you choose to give a character the first name Knox, it's probably best not to make the next word of his name start with the word over. Perhaps if he'd been a Marvel supervillain and serial perpetrator of heists, he could have gotten away with the name Knox Over Banks. Maybe Groucho Marx could have added a superfluous initial and got away with the comedy alias Knox Q Overstreet. But in a respected, Oscar-winning screenplay, Knox Overstreet just doesn't cut it as a credible name. It's enough to make even Gibson Rickenbacker roll his eyes in disbelief. Come on, Mr. Overstreet, you twerp. Well, thanks for that, Andy Overgoulding. <laughs> it, it's funny, I think we, we, we talked about the names earlier on. I, they're just so hard to come up with, I think. Names, and I've written bits and bobs of, 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 of fiction over the time, and I think generally just normal standard straight names are, are relatively easy. But when you, as soon as I delve into the world of sci-fi, which I, I don't in my writing, but I just, it just, I don't think I could ever do it. no. no. I'm lucky enough to have actually named an actual human. And I am convinced that nine months is the pregnancy period just because that's how long the argument takes. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, our, our youngest is called such because... No, she's not called the youngest. Um, she's, called, she's not called such either. No, <laughs> Neve is called Neve because it's literally the only name we could agree on. And wow. that was it. Um, I, you know, I, I, I quite liked Hannah, but no, apparently that's, that's not right. I've never met a Hannah I didn't like. No, me either. No, no, they tend to be nice, don't they? Yeah, they do. Adams too. Adam. Yeah. Adam, yeah. Mm -hmm. Solid name. Mm -hmm. Andy, Rachel. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I think to write this kind of thing, I think it it does take some kind of genius because when you have something called the infinite probability drive Mm -hmm. and you've got the universe and infinity to deal with, I don't know, how would you even get it done? <laughs> I mean, it just, I, I'd, I'd still be in a room staring at a, yeah. a piece of paper or writing everything down. But yeah. actually, you know, it's, it's, it was... I mean, he does have that famous quote, doesn't he, about the deadlines. You know, I, I do love a deadline. I love the whooshing noise as they go past. <laughs> uh, but it, it, he appears to have everything under control and you have this confidence in him as a, as, a, as a writer. Yeah, I think that's true. I I do think he's genius. I think... Oh, was, bless him. Um, I think there is genius there because... There is an assurance about it. When he says the infinite improbability drive, you go, yeah, of course that exists. Yeah, that's yeah. real. <laughs> and um, yeah, the Vogons, yeah, their poetry hurts your ears. Yeah, yeah, I'm going with this. <laughs> and you don't sort of, you laugh at it, but you don't actually question it. You don't go, oh, well, that wouldn't exist. Even though, you know, it's a whole different universe. But mm. you're absolutely in that very solid, very well thought out world where everything actually does, it does all tie in. 
there's something about um, when people write uh, fantasy novels or sci-fi novels, it doesn't matter if there's a unicorn in it. As long as a unicorn fits in the physics and the actual science of that universe, you're okay. But you've got to make sure it fits in that universe. And with him, it absolutely fits. Everything goes in it really, really well. And it's all tied together with the guide. And I think that's where the real genius comes in, is when you're starting to slightly question, go, what does he mean by that? He'll give you a little footnote and go, this is what I mean by that. And it's, it's just great. Mm. Every time you sort of question something, the answer's there. Yeah. And I, I just love it. I think it's so clever. It is. I mean, I I tried to look for balance. I was worried that this would end up being a, a, a loving episode. And I think when we all first got together, I said to you, well, look, you know, if, if you two both think the same about something, I'm going to come off and try and give an alternate opinion. It's not worked, has it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, all, you know, so I think, well, OK, well, I don't think that. And to, to, to try and say that I do is, is, is false. And, you know, your, your listener is going to see right through you there. So I, I, look, I looked around. I looked beyond page two of Google. I mean, this is how, how far wow. I went. I know it's bonkers. <laughs> Um, nothing, nothing. I mean, I, I can't, I can't see, you know, too much criticism for it. It's just, you know. I did have one person say they got really annoyed with the footnotes. For me, it's an integral part. Yeah, it's called the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. Hello, That's but the they were they were like, oh, oh, but I was into the story and then I had to read a footnote. And it's like, you don't have to. You can read it how you want to read it. Mm. Um, so I mean, you know, some people have read the whole story through and then gone back to the footnotes. You can do that. It's a footnote. But it's like they couldn't cope with the rules of it. It's like, oh, 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 I'm going to be out of the story now and have to read about this thing. And it's like, wow. Odd, though, because the story seems willfully choppy to accommodate that. (laughs) There really isn't anything too linear about it anyway. So, yeah, that seemed like an odd criticism. That was the only one I found. And I looked a little bit beyond the second page of Google. Did you? <laughs> Just a little bit, not much. But I was but like, really? I was, much, as I was looking for dissension as well, I wasn't really finding it, to be oh, honest. Yeah. Quite intrigued to, to know how early an example of sci-fi spoof this is. Because mm. I did a, a little bit of research, but first page Google stuff. <laughs> uh, but I, I couldn't... We're great researchers. I can't <laughs> find... <laughs> you know when you go for your next job interview, Andy? Like, well, I go to page five. <laughs> Give him the job. <laughs> I didn't think such a person existed. <laughs> but, I mean, it, obviously it's been very influential on a lot of comedy sci-fi since then. Like, chief stuff like Red Dwarf, you can mm. yeah. obviously oh, yeah. see. But yeah. I can't find a lot beforehand i mean i came across this guy uh henry kuttner who's written some uh i've, I've just started i downloaded it off the back of this uh, some of his short stories and they're really good but they're they're uh, quite different it's comedy sci-fi but they're they're quite a different style so from what i can see this was a very early example of this kind of mm. comedy sci-fi and so it's even more impressive given that I mean, it was. It's really. It's. It's a genre that's that's waiting to be parodied, isn't it? Sci-fi. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and yet, I can't find a lot of a uh, a lot of other examples that predate no. it. I think the thing is that uh, somebody like Kuttner would probably do comedy sci-fi, but I think the thing that Douglas Adams does is that he takes normality and mundanity and puts it in a sci-fi yeah. way, and that's really unusual. This idea of the young ones in space, which is what Red Dwarf was meant to be. Yeah. And. Um, this idea of he's just desperate for a cup of tea. Yeah, and, just, yeah. and this damn machine won't make a <laughs> cup of tea. And, and you just think it's relatable, even though it's a completely crazy world. It's relatable because you just think, oh, poor Arthur, he just wants to have a sit down, have a <laughs> cup of tea. And I, I've never seen that in sci-fi before or since, actually. And I don't read a lot, to be fair. But um, I'd, like, I'd be interested if anybody's listening to this podcast and yeah. would like to tweet and tell me of any other... Um, books that they can think sure, of that do that. Though, oh, I'm sure. But I don't want 
listen well. I don't want I don't want a spoof of sci-fi. I want that mundane want a cup of tea, cricket, that kind of thing in a sci-fi background. The mundane sci-fi. Go. <laughs> well, I mean, we should write it, shouldn't we, really? We've got an audience. I was about to say, if you, if you have no, no suggestions, then let's go and try and write one. <laughs> it's interesting that you talk about uh, re- uh, relatability because mm. it, that was quite important to me because uh, Arthur Dent is, is obviously our, our point of entry, isn't he? And I, I read this in a lovely old library copy that Rachel gave me. It's a little sort of pocket-sized sort of... Uh, it's, a, it's an old-looking book. And that that felt right to me. And um, I've since downloaded uh, some more because I'm going to read the, the sequels. Uh, I've downloaded it on my Kindle. But l- looking at it on there, I almost feel like I'm I'm holding the guide itself. I feel like I'm in that future. And it's so, it's, oddly, it takes some of that relatability yeah. out of it, not having just a, a book. Yeah, no, I totally get that. The book that I read, because obviously I've... I've gifted you that one um which is a lovely and it's the complete just the first book in one yeah. book and it's hardback and it's, it's very a, it's sweet a lovely book. and um and is i really want out, to... is still outstanding from the library rachel <laughs> it was an ex-library copy oh, <laughs> right. she, she's torn the ticket off at the front <laughs> but um i had the um 1980s copy um penguin copy which was very thin and very battered and i thought i'm gonna get the rest as well so i got like this omnibus edition which has got the five in it and um it didn't feel right <laughs> at all. It's just too big. I thought, no, no, this is too big. Yeah. I'm, I'm overwhelmed by it. It's, it's too much. And I had to put a big card between the books like, because, like, right, that ends there because I can cope with that, but I can't actually cope with all of that. And it felt too big in my hands. I was like, no, it needs to be a little book because that's what I'm used to. Or it needs to be maybe, yeah, I like this idea of being on a Kindle and it feeling like the guys. <laughs> that's really cool. And again, I mean, that's... Visionary, as in it's, it's it's so before its time. Because when they were talking about the guide itself and what the guide looked like, I was just thinking, well, that's a, a, a tablet or an e-reader, isn't it? You know, I mean, that's so. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was inspired. Maybe it inspired what happened, or you know, I mean, just yeah. put it into popular culture years before we even knew the technology existed. Yeah, um, which always always brings me back. Always brings me back to going live with Philip Scope. <laughs> Philip Schofield and Sarah Green. Now, years and years ago, and I've tried to look for this on YouTube, but if anyone's got a copy, please, please send it to me. Because <laughs> everyone was taping going live, weren't they? <laughs> and for an April Fool's Day joke, and I always think of this on April Fool's Day, Philip Schofield had this little machine in his hand and said, this is you know, a thing of the future. And um, basically, it was it was an MP3 player, but it was he was fooling everyone and saying, oh, you know, I want you to play, oh, I don't know, let's just say... Um, when will I be famous by Bross? And he said that to it. And obviously in the studio, someone pushed a button and they played it, you know, but he was saying, no, this is it. This is the machine doing it. I was thinking, well, no, that was, that was it. That was, yeah. that was <laughs> you fool. Um, it's, it's so funny because something like that was very accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you used to watch Tomorrow's World, if you remember that. And they said, oh yeah, this is going to happen. None of it ever happened. <laughs> yeah, it, it does seem comedy does, uh, does seem to be like a rich source of invention. <laughs> There's an old Saturday Night Live sketch about a razor that has more than one blade for a better shape as well. It's funny, isn't it? I think that's where the best ideas come from because there's a little bit of madness about it. Yeah. A little bit of don't rationalise it too much. What would you really like? And so you come up with these great ideas. Excellent. Now, as we heard earlier, even the death of Douglas Adams couldn't stop the Hitchhikers franchise with a new book in the series written by Yoan Colfer being published in 2009. But this isn't the only example of the potentially controversial practice of new authors taking on existing series. Rachel has been finding out more. 
Hitchhikers is without doubt a classic, and to many of its fans, to mess with it is tantamount to sacrilege. However, in 2009, eight years after the death of Douglas Adams and 17 years on from the release of Mostly Harmless, Johan Kolfer, author of the Artemis Fowl series, wrote part six of three, or rather the next in the Hitchhiker series, entitled And Another Thing. Although the phrase shoulda left it was poised on the lips of many a fan, its reception was actually really positive and it was generally agreed that it had done a pretty cracking job on it. But is it really wise to try to continue another author's work? Other famous book series have also undergone the old series new author treatment, with Ian Fleming's Bond series being one of the most affected. Birdsong author Sebastian Fawkes wrote Devil May Care in 2008, and it went straight to number one in the UK bestseller lists, becoming the fastest selling hardback in Penguin's history. But was that due just to a hunger for Bond himself, especially with the rejuvenation of the film franchise with a fantastic Sam Mendes at the helm? Or was it more to do with Fawkes himself and his own considerable fanbase wondering what he'd do with it? Either way, it was so successful that the publishers went on to try a couple of other established authors, William Boyd with Solo in 2014, and most recently Anthony Horowitz in 2015 with Trigger Mortis. Horowitz appeared to be a very apt choice, as he'd already written the Alex Ryder series, something of a bond for teens, back in the early noughties. However, it's difficult to write a chauvinistic, womanising spy with few redeeming features and still make him charming these days, and that's often where the sequels hit hurdles. Anthony Horowitz was more successful with his continuation of the Sherlock Holmes series, House of Silk in 2011 and Moriarty in 2014. Ardent fans and critics love the attention to detail, the wit and deep understanding Horowitz has of the character, as well as the style of Doyle. Like the clever and reverent TV series, this Sherlock is a respectful and welcome addition to the canon. Another famous crime stopper has also come under the sequel umbrella of late, Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot. Sophie Hanna, a very talented crime writer herself, wrote Monogram Murders in 2014 and Closed Casket in 2016. Though both received praise, it was generally agreed that Christie's style is inimitable and that only Christie can do Christie. With all this talk of mysteries and crime, it may come as a surprise to some to learn that Jane Austen's classic Pride and Prejudice was carried on by well-known crime author P.D. James in 2011. While fans probably yearned for more of the intricacies of Georgian society and the blossoming family of the Darcys, what we actually got was a murder. Death Comes to Pemberley was not a fan favourite for obvious reasons, but appeared to do well enough, even still, that a TV miniseries was made of it. I think, in this instance, a sequel to one of Austen's greatest works was somewhat ill-advised. Surely, one of the hardest things for an author to do is to complete a novel started by someone else. In 2012, one of my favourite authors, Patrick Ness, released A Monster Calls. The story was based on an idea and characters created by the late, great Siobhan Dowd, who died of cancer before she could begin writing it. The book is especially poignant, as it tells the story of a mother dying of terminal cancer and the effect it has on her son. To take on this highly personal and emotional project must have been a difficult decision for Ness, but he wrote it with such heart, such sensitivity, that it is truly a fitting tribute to its original creator. 
So, despite the obvious challenges that come with taking on another author's work, it's clear that there can be new wonders to be found in characters who still have stories to tell. Thanks for that, Rachel. So, um, going back to it, you know, if, if struggling as we were to, to sort of try and find some criticism or, or something to whinge about, um, if I was going to whinge about anything, <laughs> um, it's going to be the ending. And I have, the, I have a theory on endings. Um, I rewatched the Harry Potter films recently and I seem to remember that when they ended, everyone was quite upset with the ending or when the books ended, people were upset with the ending, you know, as, as, as to how it happened or or maybe they thought the ending was too drawn out. They say, it's not that. It's, it's not that people are upset with it. They're upset because they've got familiar with characters. And I think this brings in what, what you said, Rachel, earlier about, you know, you want to spend more time with these people. You know, they're kind of fun to be around, aren't they? And... You're not going to spend any more time with them, and you know. I mean, this is this is the, the enduring legacy of why people are taking books on yeah. uh, and writing themselves. They want to know what happens next, um, and it, uh, particularly the, the the very sad death of Douglas Adams, it does it, it puts that stop and mm. and and the, and the final bit on it. And I'm um, I, I, when we used to do a program called the Reading Room, I declared at that point that that my favourite book was by Pete McCarthy, a travel writer from uh, well, he used to do some travelogue bits on on TV, and he wrote two books: Road to McCarthy and uh, McCarthy's Bar. And he had a unique and brilliant take of, of of observing the world around you, and. It's just the saddest thing because he was prepping for a third book or that kind of thing. But, you know, it's like no one seems to have appeared to step in those shoes, mm. I don't think, and really sort of uh, take that on and, um, well, just discover new pubs around the world, really. <laughs> but, but but I've often thought I'd, I'd, I'd like to do it, but it's it's the, the fear, you know. It mm. takes a huge confidence, doesn't it, to, uh, to, 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 to carry on uh, mm. and, and step in there. I think it takes a huge love as well and understanding mm. and empathy. I think it's very, very difficult, especially in something like um, with that, with McCarthy's um, books, because they're very personal. It's not a fictional thing. Yeah. And it's very much his view of things. So to try and write it in his style wouldn't work because you are not him. I think fiction's slightly different because I think if you read it enough, and I'm sure there are people who've read Hitchhikers so often that they can almost imitate it. Mm-hmm. But then you've got to come up with the concepts. So I don't I don't know. I think I think it's lovely that Yohan's done this and he was a massive fan and he and you know, by all accounts he has a great understanding. And the fans love it, which is a really good sign. Yeah. But there is always a danger. I think when you mess with something that's so in people's hearts, do you really want to take this on? Because you could really upset people. Mm. So, I mean, I know I mentioned in the article about Pride and Prejudice and the death, uh, death Comes to Pemberley and this Jane Eyre thing as well. I'm a massive Jane Eyre fan. It's my favourite book of all time. And people have done all sorts to it. They've done sequels, prequels, spin-offs, all sorts of things. And I hate them all. <laughs> because what, it's the, just... the people? Or the... No, no, the work. Well, hmm. but, um, but you just, there's certain things. It's like, do you mess with this? And it's like, it's from a certain time. As well, this is another thing. If you're going right back to classics... You can't ever c- properly grasp what it was like living in those times. You know, you've read the history books, but really, do you know what it was to live in those times? I mean, Charlotte Bronte had to work, had to write under a, a pseudonym because you know women didn't write like that. But you don't have you don't have that restriction now. If you're a woman writing about Jane Eyre, you don't have that restriction. You don't understand that kind of oppression. So um, it's it's a strange thing to to grab hold of a classic and go, I'm going to continue with this. I'm yeah. not sure if it's. If it's always about love or it's about a little bit of arrogance, possibly. Mm. Yeah. So, I don't know. I think people accept sort of reimaginings a bit more yeah. readily, don't they? Like yeah, Sherlock. 
or something yeah, like that, yeah. which is taking it but doing it in a different way. Yeah. So you take what people love about it, but you're mm. not saying I'm I'm building with these same characters and and that's going to become part of the canon mm. of, of what happens to them. It's it's reinterpretation, yeah. and I think yeah. people are a little bit more willing to uh, to accept that because it doesn't. They don't feel that anything's solid by it. So I mean, as we as we walk towards the ending now, I mean, I, I thought the ending was 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 pretty good. And there's a sort of good momentum, really, of a bit of action and silliness. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> obviously. Um, when I talk about the ending and the disappointment of losing the characters and things like that, that's I'm going to say it's, it's enough for me to go and I'm going to be downloading the rest of the audio books. Uh, Andy, you've got the rest of them downloaded to your Kindle. Yeah. Are you going to, you going to go on from oh, there? Oh, definitely. Yeah. The only reason I haven't already is because I thought I would get confused between them yeah. when I, when yeah, I came me too, and, me too. and did this. But I think as an ending, it, it's what I wanted because I didn't feel that sense of losing the characters because it, it says, let's go on to the restaurant at the end of the universe. And you know that they're going mm-hmm. on from there. It's almost as if someone just rips some pages out. You know that there's more yeah. and you know it's out there to get. And so I'm quite happy at the minute because I've got four more books to, to get through <laughs> uh, with these characters. I'm really looking forward to uh, plunging in, probably do some of that over Christmas. Okay, um, so yeah, you're going to go for more, Rachel? Um, yeah, I'm going to continue listening to the radio show as well because um, obviously only part of that is the first book and it carries on. And I, I do want to read the Ewan Colfer as well mm. and see, see how that it, yeah. yeah see how that stacks up. I mean, the reviews have been favourable. The fans seem to like it. So I think that's worth a go. So my predicament now is that the other books, the other audio books I can see uh, have been read by Martin Freeman rather than Stephen Fry. Um, so when you, I think, I think Martin Freeman will be excellent, and he's obviously got a, a love for it, you know, after being in the film. However, once you've been read to by Stephen Fry, hmm. um, I don't know. No, it seems, it seems yeah. like you're dropping down a peg. Yeah, that's not quite right, is it? It's like it's like my familiarity with the guide's voice being Peter Jones, and it's like your familiarity with the with the guide is Stephen Fry. So you can't have some usurper <laughs> coming in and reading it and pretending to be the guide. Well, you can, but it's not going to be the same. I don't. Can can you not get Stephen Fry doing the others? Is that it? I've perhaps not put the research. Maybe if I go to Google Page Two. I was going to say. I think you need to (laughs) expand your horizon. (laughs) Um, Okay, so uh, it's come to uh, a scale, and I realised about ten minutes ago that I hadn't picked one. So (laughs) I think we're going to go. Did you find it a pangalactic gargle blaster, or was it Vogon poetry? I'd like to go the way of Arthur Dent and say it was a nice cup of tea. Actually, <laughs> not in for gargle blasts. <laughs> they do sound. They sound fierce, don't they? They really do. And much as I love it, I don't particularly want my head blown off by one. So, can I go for a nice cup of tea? Yes, because it makes me feel all warm and fuzzy. Okay, thank you. Fine. We'll uh, we'll slip some pangolin gargle. Blasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously for me it was it was several pangalactic gargle blasters. <laughs> it was a it was a session, and the session's going to continue. Yeah, because we will be. I think we're all going to go on and yeah. uh, and read and consume more of that. Um, okay, now we've we've had some feedback feedback from on on our Breakfast Club episode, oh, uh, which is there. Uh, you can go via the Podbean app, which is how this uh, listener got involved. But of course, we're on iTunes. Uh, you'll find us uh, via our website as well. Details coming up on that. Uh, but this is from Mohammed. He says, "Great show, guys." She's oh, a good opener, isn't it? Yeah. I think he's always good, that, isn't it? If you, you know, start, lovely, yeah. start positive. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Die Hard. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I think we know how I feel about requests. However, I think you know the, 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 the listeners that have got in touch with and don't go don't go nuts on this now. <laughs> 
But the listeners that have got in touch with, with requests are pretty good. And he says, uh, Studio Ghibli film. And uh, he says in brackets, they're Princess Mononoke. Thank you very much. I knew you'd be there for me. Uh, perhaps, uh, or oh, Memento in season four. Now, I'm assuming that that's a TV series, is it Memento, mm, rather than the I film? Uh, but he says, keep climbing that steep hill and reaching new heights. And of course, the uh, the steep hill refers to uh, the one leading up to our cathedral here in Lincoln. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think... Uh, I think you'd die hard, aren't you? Oh, yeah. yeah. I think we can deliver on that. Definitely. Mm. <laughs> okay, so thanks to Rachel, Andy, our producer, Johnny, and of course you for listening. Well done. Time to leave you now with our resident poet, Andy Goulding. When human beings extend a thumb, it's always been a sign. For job well done, or I agree, or gee, you're looking fine. And yet I find out recently a thumbs up on the road means something very different in the hitchhiker's own code. A hitchhiker with thumb aloft can be identified as someone who wants picking up and taking for a ride. This helps explain a pattern that I've noticed down the years, in which a roadside thumbs up would be paired with boos and jeers, as I returned the gesture and then sped on ever quicker, mistaking it for feedback on my How's My Driving sticker. You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher, and you also heard clips from the Hitchhiker's Guide audiobook from Macmillan Digital Audio, read by Stephen Fry. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to support us, you can go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Or you can help us out simply by telling your friends about us, sharing links to our show or writing us a nice review on iTunes. Next time on Spoiler, we're taking a look at the 2015 British thriller, High Rise. You don't know how things work around here, do you? I'm a fast learner. If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook, or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful Cathedral City of Lincoln. I know. You keep going on about it. It sounds awful. Arthur Dent.